and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 186. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Ron Levine. Hey, Kip. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm especially looking forward to this episode today. You once introduced me to the concept of an ego threat, and in this conversation we were having, you placed it in juxtaposition to external or existential threats that human beings 50,000 years ago in ancient times would have had to deal with, whether that's a predator, starvation, famine, or any environmental realities that have made life and continue to make life difficult for human beings to survive. And within that comparison, I think it's really fascinating to think about how modern ego threats, as we will define in this conversation, differ from, and in some ways are similar to, external threats that human beings faced. But before we go any further, how would you go about defining an ego threat? So our ancestors, like you mentioned, did face existential threats on a regular basis, whether it was a saber-toothed tiger, famine, weather conditions. And those of our ancestors who exhibited certain traits are the ones who survived, the ones who looked for threats on a regular basis, who were hypervigilant, who had what we today refer to as a negativity bias. These are the ones who made it. If you weren't always looking for threats, if you weren't always looking for the problem areas, you were going to get eaten. So what we've ended up with is sort of this confluence of factors that have brought us where we are today. One of them is at the time that our ancestors were facing these kinds of threats, and by definition, we were facing these threats because we were in the middle of the food chain. Through evolution, we gained a lot of advantages that allowed us to prematurely jump to the top of the food chain in a way that no other creature had before. If you look at lions and the way that they gradually made it to the top of the food chain, they had a chance to gracefully grow into that role. And the ecosystem around that also had a chance to adapt to their role, whether it was gazelles developing the ability to run faster or other animals being able to camouflage better. There was this sort of give and take between the species that made it to the top and the others around them. Humans were given a lot of evolutionary gifts, if you will, but each one of these gifts came with a downside. And one of the most striking ones, which not coincidentally also has the biggest downside, which we'll talk about in a moment, is abstract thought. We were able to use abstract thinking to plan, to use advanced language, to communicate with each other. And along with other gifts that we received, like thumbs and walking upright, that allowed us to make this premature jump to the top of the food chain. We didn't grow into it gradually like lions did. We got there very, very quickly. Not only did our environment around us not really have a chance to adapt to that, we ourselves did not have a chance to adapt to that. So when you compare us to lions who at the top of the food chain were very graceful and confident, humans are more like what I've seen referred to as banana republic dictators. We're riddled with anxiety. We're still hypervigilant. We're still looking for threats. 
the same kind of dissatisfaction with our lot that allowed our ancestors to survive and thrive is something we still feel today, even though we live in a world that not only do we not experience these existential threats as our ancestors did, but we actually now have the tools and the ability to make the world adapt to us instead of the other way around. So here we are living in this world that we've created the way that we want it and we experience, of course, I'm talking about mostly Western countries and so forth, but we experience a level of comfort and abundance that has never existed before. And yet we're not happy. And the reason that there's this kind of disconnect is because we have these very primal, if you want to call them passions or instincts, really baked into our DNA. It's who we are. It's why we're here. It's why we made it. These are very fundamental parts of who we are that isn't going to be resolved by manipulating our external environment. This is where it starts to become an ego threat. As part of our capacity for abstract thought, we are able to develop a very, very strong sense of self. And it's another whole discussion as to whether a self even really exists. And there's a lot of debate about that. But we each hold a very strong sense of self that we believe in and build up. And that is where we now experience most of our threats. We do not have to fear the saber-toothed tiger, but we do fear whether our boss is angry at us. We do fear whether our friends think we're good enough. We do fear whether we are where we think we should be in life. So our threats have become very abstract in a sense, but we still feel them the same way our ancestors felt on the African savanna millions of years ago. Our subconscious minds and our bodies are still living in that world, even though our conscious minds are living in this comfortable, abundant world that we've created today. We still experience this dissatisfaction because that's part of who we are. Dissatisfaction is our birthright, but now it's being manifested in a very different world. And that's why you can draw this parallel between the threats that our ancestors faced versus the threats that we face today. And maybe when I say the threats that we face today, maybe threats should be in quotes. Those aren't the existential threats that our ancestors faced. You gave a lot of interesting examples, and one that really stands out to me is, does my boss like me? Because I would contend there is buried within that an existential threat. If one's boss does not like that individual, they are potentially susceptible to being fired or let go. And that leads to a drastic decrease in income and, of course, the difficulties that would present. However, I do think being liked by other people is, to an extent, more of a modern threat than it previously was, in my estimation. Obviously, human beings have always been social, or at least in a loose sense, tracing back to our ancestors. But this idea that survival is taken care of for many of us, it's not as hard to find food or shelter, socialization becomes an even bigger piece of the pie. And that's why I think it's so fascinating to see how deeply, and at times problematically, a lot of us dwell on being liked. 
There are countless examples of social media run amok where people are fixated on the amount of reactions or comments they receive. And I think that comes from this ego threat, this idea that, well, I'm fed, clothed, and taken care of in other ways, but the social side of me hungers for something. Myself is vulnerable in that sense. And you were also astute to bring up comparison, this question of how do I stack up against my peers? Something that indeed may have been present hundreds of thousands of years ago with our ancestors, but probably not as large a priority or concern if you and your peers are emaciated and haven't found food in days. And what I find fascinating is that both of these groups are defined as human beings, and indeed, genetically, we probably share a great deal in common. So what's really intriguing to the points that you made is that we human beings are operating in a framework, in a shell, if you will, that we have outgrown, or that does not correlate with the current circumstances many of us find ourselves in. And I wrote down in preparation for this conversation that society, as a construct, human beings working together and living with one another, establishing rules, etc., has broadly functioned to reduce and address these external or existential threats, but ego threats, which were certainly present back then, I have to imagine, have persisted and in some sense have gotten worse. Society at large, in my perception, was not built to address ego threats. And that's why I think the frontier remains, why therapy has become increasingly popular, why meditation and religion historically have existed, because people feel a need to find meaning, to quell the doubts and voices in their heads that tell them negative or concerning things about how they relate to others. You also mentioned the gifts that evolution has given us and their downsides. I really love the term gifts because I think so many of us see only positive in gifts. You receive something either for free or on a predetermined holiday or date, and it is meant to add to your life, not to add and also complicate. But in the nature of reality, very few things are purely positive or purely anything. Life is this muddled mess of emotions and circumstances. And given that perspective, I think it's worth thinking about how evolution has hindered us in some senses. We do have very strong fear responses and vigilance to possible threats, which I suspect makes many of us overreact to criticism or other social elements of our world that are not openly hostile to us, but indeed, as you had pointed out, feel just as threatening or similarly visceral to previous threats like an animal or starvation. And I wonder where humanity is headed in the long term because I also wrote down that we evolved gradually in response to the physical world and, of course, early rudimentary societal pressures and factors. But in contrast, we are living through the past century or so of pretty rapid change and development in our technologies, in our framework for interacting with one another. And this can be observed in other species as well, that rapid changes in environment drastically shift how organisms behave, how they survive. And of course, human beings have adaptability as one of our cornerstones. But I'm personally of the belief, despite my typical optimism for our species, that there are circumstances and factors to which we cannot rapidly adapt and that may force us to reconsider who we are as people and frankly, where we belong how we interact with one another, and also as increasingly the world becomes a safer place, a more technologically developed place, 
what it means to be a human being. Philosophical questions that indeed, despite my fervor for thoughtful content, were not at the forefront of our ancestors' minds, who may have had time to ponder existence, but needed to devote more time to survival itself. And of course, if you don't live, you can't necessarily ponder what it means to be alive, which of course gets into questions of the afterlife, and what exists, if anything, beyond human experience. So you mentioned a few things that I want to touch on. I'll go in order. You're definitely right about whether your boss likes you has a more existential slant to it, which in itself can make it feel like a deeper threat because that is getting to survival. Where it tends to differ for us today versus our ancestors is not even just in the immediacy of the threat, but also in what is one of the downsides of our gift of abstract thought in the past and the future a lot. You had a recent episode about impulses and talked about animals acting on impulse. People don't act on impulse so much. And I was listening to that episode and I kept thinking about this exact topic where people today don't live in the present very much. We're mostly thinking about things that happened to us in the past. We're anticipating things that are going to happen in the future. And that's where you can really draw this line between the existential threat of the saber-toothed tiger and the somewhat more abstract threat of the boss. If your boss comes in and yells at you for something, you're going to have the same kind of reaction our ancestors would have had on the African savanna. Now, when the threat was averted on the African savanna, assuming you lived, you went back about your business and went about your day. When your boss leaves the room after yelling at you, you're probably not just going to go back about your day. You're going to stew on that the rest of the day, the rest of the night, maybe into the next day, and you're going to be angry and you're going to think about what you could have done differently and you're going to think about storming out or punching your boss in the face. And then that's when fear is going to start to come in and you start running through all these scenarios in your head. That's where I start to draw the difference between an immediate existential threat versus an abstract. So that was one point I wanted to touch on. It definitely is more of an existential threat than whether your friends like you, assuming your friends aren't the ones providing you with sustenance, but we still handle it in a very, very different way than our ancestors did. The second point was one that I actually made in a talk recently, and you almost used the exact phrase that I did, which was social media jungle. So when I referred to our capacity for abstract thought being one of our gifts, that's something that arose with an increase in brain size. And that increase in brain size increased in lockstep with the size of our social groups. As we formed tribes to cooperate and survive, our brains grew and our capacity for abstract thought grew. And we developed the capacity to take other people's perspectives, which in itself has an upside and a downside. We can use it for cooperation. We could use it for deception. Every one of these things is a double-edged sword. Research has indicated that the maximum size that these tribes could reach was about 150 people. At that point, our brains could not sift through that many interrelationships and keep track of all of these people. So something that I had mentioned in this talk that I gave recently is, could you imagine what our ancestors would think today to see how we are able to receive immediate feedback from billions of people about ourselves? Feedback which may or may not be accurate. 
probably is not accurate, but either way, we are not equipped to handle that. And yet that is what we do on a regular basis. I use social media, but I really use it as a means to an end, not as an end to itself. So I'm not one of those people who's down on social media. I actually think it's a great thing. It's something that has been great for me. But it's definitely something that we're not really equipped to handle and the way that it's presented to us, if you will. You made an interesting comment saying that society is not built to help us with ego threats. I would go much stronger than that. I would say that much of what we see in society is the source of our ego threats and is causing or embellishing our ego threats. It's long been known that one of the greatest motivators is fear. If you look at politics, if you look at advertising, if you look at stuff that you'll see in social media, there are constant messages about you're not safe. I'm going to make you safe. You're not good enough. Buy this and you'll be good enough. Again, I'm not down on politics or capitalism per se, but they are conducive to these kinds of effects. So we do inhabit a world that because of social media, because of advertising, because of politics, all of these things, which all have their upsides as well, we do live in a world where these have become our African savanna. These are our jungle. And the threats that we feel and face are our ego threats. The one other thing that you mentioned that I wanted to touch upon briefly you had mentioned that our ancestors may have had some limited time to ruminate on existential philosophical things, but had to spend most of their time dealing with actual emergencies. That's a really important point because we don't have to spend all that time on those kinds of things now. But that has only given us more time to ruminate. So as I mentioned earlier, we still have this negativity bias. We still have this drive to look for threats. We still have this built-in dissatisfaction. And ironically, the comfortable world, the comparatively comfortable world that we live in now has given us only more time to let those passions which now don't really have an outlet anymore to burn out of control. The explicit nod to fear is really crucial in my mind because it is a powerful motivator and has arguably shaped evolution not only in a human sense, but globally since time immemorial in one form or another. It is this powerful presence in our world that does dictate many of our actions. And I firmly believe, as those wiser and more articulate than I have said, that our actions and behaviors do exist on a spectrum of fear and love. That in one way or another, we gravitate towards some actions, behaviors, even items themselves, and are repulsed by or avoid other actions, items, and behaviors based on our assessment of them. And what I think is interesting is fear disguised as love. For example, I think there are many weight loss ads that talk about the benefits of getting healthier. And I think that could lean towards either of those two extremes. On one hand, you're shown people who are healthy, appear to be happy, etc. So you might think this ad is talking about love, but let's be honest, many of us fear the ridicule of our peers who might talk about our bodily appearance in ways that make us feel vulnerable or not good enough. Look at politics, as you had brought up, 
And there are many fearful ads speaking about one candidate and saying what they won't do or speaking to the state of our country, local governments, etc. in very negative tones. But often those ads include optimistic or encouraging notes about a particular candidate saying things are terrible now, of course nodding to fear, but then following with but this candidate can do so much good for the world, for the country we live in, and ending on a note of love. And I think that deception, or that muddled confusion between these two extremes, is in and of itself an ego threat. I don't know how well modern humans are capable of discerning the difference between some things which may actually exist in a gray area. For example, constructive criticism. One very effective way of trying to communicate supportive ideas is all too frequently taken as an attack when it is meant to be a supporting but firm gesture. And I think humans have difficulty at times discerning between those two things. Another example that comes to my mind as we've talked about social media is that some internet stars, many of them in their 20s and still developing both personally and psychologically, have garnered millions of followers, fans, and supporters all around the world. And I think this attention might be seen as positive, but I believe that fame allowed by modern society, where millions of people can know who you are and can have a window into some element of your life, gives a sense of power and influence that alters behavior and creates an inflated sense of self-importance. So while we might be striving towards that, that appears to be safety and positivity and prosperity, so many people love me, of course that's a good thing, there are downsides to that. I'm glad you've used the term double-edged sword throughout this conversation because there is a lot of nuance and a lot of gray area surrounding this entire topic. I'm of the opinion that some of our threats, be they existential in the past or more ego-driven in the present, can lead to great growth depending on how you approach them. I think it's all about how you assess the threat and what you ultimately want to do about it. Obviously, our ancestors were able to survive terrible circumstances because they were clever or strong or resourceful in some way, which are generally positive traits. And I think similarly, in a modern sense, as I see in some of my peers, it is possible for an individual to look at their loneliness or a certain need for validation and approval from others and think critically about who they are and what they want. And I wouldn't be surprised if, as we journey further into the 21st century, more and more people do pursue mindfulness and holistic wellness to address the evolutionary pitfalls of the mind that hasn't quite caught up with our modern circumstances. And I hope that listeners don't see this topic as entirely negative, because I think there is something to learn, whether you, Ron, or I have been able to hit it on the head or articulate it, that doesn't make this topic entirely downtrodden or apocalyptic, as we're, of course, speaking about an entire species of creatures. That's a great point, Kip. Thank you for filling in a gap that I often forget to. So I've been practicing mindfulness for 20 years now, and it's been extremely helpful. And it is something that I enjoy talking about, particularly in these areas that we've been discussing. But I do often forget to mention these upsides. This isn't a purely negative topic. Things like fear and fear of threats, I mean, these are good. (laughs) We need these to survive. And threat, by definition, in a sense, is negative. But we can deal with threats in various ways, some skillful, some not so much. 
But it's not even so much just how we deal with threats. A lot of it is simply what we're viewing as threats in the first place. A lot of what we've talked about in this conversation with these ego threats and so forth are not things that really are inherent threats, especially, for example, when we're talking about whether our friends like us. That's something that even if there was something going on where every one of our friends, as we often think they do, are sharing a singular hive mind about us and they were using this hive mind to think negative things about us, even if that was happening, technically, it's not pleasant, but technically it's not a threat. But now when you take it a step further and realize, well, there is no hive mind, we have no idea what each of our individual friends are really thinking. And honestly, what our individual friends are probably thinking is about their group of friends hive mind, which, by the way, includes us. And they're worried about what we're thinking about them. So there are different layers here. There are real, actual threats. Then there are the threats that are, eh, okay, they could be happening, but even if they are, they're not really actually threatening our well-being, at least physically, say. And then you've got this next layer of things that just aren't even remotely real or happening. And because of our inherent dissatisfaction and negativity bias, we keep looking for them and we look for them until we find them, even if they're not there. That is where, as you mentioned, things like mindfulness come into play and we can watch those processes as they happen so that maybe we can find a little relief from the downsides of these gifts that we have been given. And Ron, before we conclude this episode, what would you like the audience to consider after listening to this conversation? These are things that affect all of us. I think everybody who's listening to this can identify with at least one or two things that we've talked about. And I'd encourage people to think about these things, uh, about how they may be manifesting in their lives, whether it's threats that they're constantly looking for or a social media jungle effect. Maybe think a little bit about how they're actually living day to day in light of this self that they're concerned about building up, working on, trying to portray in a certain way and think, huh, I'm going through all of these mental ruminations and everybody else is all going through these mental ruminations and we're all so concerned. It's going to be very difficult. You can't just drop it. But I wonder if I can loosen my grip on that a little bit just for a couple of minutes and see what it's like. I'd invite people to do that. I would encourage them to do the same. I'd be really interested to hear what listeners think about social media in particular. Many of our listeners have likely heard of this show via social media, so I know they're at least involved with it in one way or another, and we all have our own relationship to it, some of which are more positive than others. But as it connects to this idea of an ego threat, I'd really love to hear what listeners think. Another example of an ego threat that came to my mind in preparation, but we didn't ultimately end up discussing, is the dating app phenomenon, and how quickly and frequently one can be rejected or treated with hostility shown graphic images from several people they don't even know, and the kind of ego threat, and indeed for some people, the possibility of an existential or a physical threat that presents what does that mean in the way we interact with one another? And also, are these apps worth the possibilities of those threats? 
and I have two final points I would love further thoughts on. First of which, that Ron and I have illustrated a body-mind duality in a sense, as far as I'm concerned, where previous human beings had to worry more about bodily survival and safety, and in a modern sense, the ego threat could also be viewed as threats to the mind, what it means to be a thinking, feeling self. And it's my perspective that we often address these two entities, A, as separate when they are not necessarily, and B, in somewhat backwards ways. I've often felt my own depression or mental lethargy erode away after a vigorous workout, and I know I'm not alone in that. So I would encourage listeners experiencing ego threats to think about potential bodily remedies. And finally, I was thinking about how I try to stay in touch with friends of mine and how those conversations can get very personal and can reveal mistakes I've made or flaws in my character, which I don't deny and hope that between my friends and I will gradually be addressed and even resolved in certain cases. But I find that interesting, circling back to the topic of threats as opportunity, because I think with certain threats or feelings of insecurity, we can learn a great deal about ourselves and actually build upon the imperfect people we are. And I don't say that with an inflated sense of idealism. The world is very hard to live in and not always clear. But I do think there are moments in which we can address negativity with a positive solution. But of course, Ron, I'd really love to thank you for coming on and discussing this topic today, especially given its inherent abstraction. Thanks very much, Kip. I've been listening for a long time and have been looking forward to being on this side of the microphone. Thanks for having me. Well, it was my pleasure, and I'm glad we could record with one another. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we're certainly not the only two human beings in the world who experience threats, be they ego or otherwise. So we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you can enjoy perks like exclusive bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.